Thanks for listening to this week's sermon from Epicos Church in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. For more information about Epicos, please visit epicos.org. Frank, I'm one of your uh, pastors. I'm one of the preaching pastors. I'm also the Mayfair Road campus pastor. And I'm glad you're here. If you have a Bible or you have a Bible in front of you, I would love for you to grab it and open to Colossians chapter one. We're gonna finish out the chapter today. And, and while you're turning, I wanna ask you this question. Raise your hand if this is true for you. Who here was not allowed to watch The Simpsons growing up? All right, I see you. I, I see you. I see you guys. Some of you guys are currently not allowed to watch The Simpsons. I get it. Um, uh, yeah, so I see the, the, the people who grew up Christian. I see you now. Um, uh, uh, I didn't. I, I, sorry, I was, it wasn't that I was allowed to. My mom wasn't allowed to tell me no, basically. She, she worked two jobs. I was a latchkey kid. And so while you were watching VeggieTales and Bible Man, I was watching South Park and The Simpsons, okay? Um, I'm not saying it's a good thing. We'll see how my life pans out because of that. But, what I am saying is I watched The Simpsons, and so for those of you who have not watched The Simpsons, let me introduce you to a specific character that I think you should know about today. His name is Ned Flanders, and he is Homer Simpson's very religious next-door neighbor. And Homer is a bit of a jerk to him. He's always mean to him. He kind of walks all over him, and the thing about Ned is that he always literally turns the other cheek. He's always like, he just takes it, and he allows Homer to like walk all over him. But what bothers me about Ned is that he tries to portray that everything is oakily dokily, right? Everything is okay. Nothing is wrong in the world. Everything is fine. And you learn that he actually bottles up all of his emotions and feelings, but chooses to project like a happy demeanor that everything is okay and that everything is fine. He is an exaggerated caricature of what Christians are like. However, my fear is that some of us are like Ned Flanders. We might not be as corny as Ned Flanders, um, but many of us pretend that we never have problems and are always good like Ned Flanders. We have these big, cheerful smiles with, and pretend that there's no issues in our lives, but I know that can't be real. It can't be real because one is, is because I read the prayer requests. I, I read the orange cards of what you guys write and there is some real struggling and suffering going on in the lives of our people. But many of us, like, like Ned Flanders, we, we don't want uh, our personal struggles to be seen by others. So we kind of keep it to ourselves. We don't want to be too vulnerable or, or intimate with each other. We rather keep church upbeat and light and we don't want anything messy. We don't want to get into other people's messy lives and we certainly don't want people uh, getting into the messiness of our own lives. And so I call this Ned Flanders Christianity, right? A Christianity that pretends that everything is always okay. A type of Christianity that is never vulnerable and never shows its scars. But here's my goal for the sermon today. My goal is that you do not have a Ned Flanders Christianity. That you walk away from this place, not like Ned Flanders, but like the type of Christianity that Paul demonstrates. A, 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 a Christianity that, that shows that we're honest with our suffering and our difficulties. The book of Colossians is written by Paul. He, uh, he, he's, he's writing to a church that he's never been to, but he knows the church planner there. He knows Epaphras. And Epaphras uh, went all the way to Rome from Colossae seeking the help of Paul because his church in Colossae was struggling with some false teaching. And this letter is the product of Paul helping his buddy in, in Colossae with this false teaching. The false teaching in Colossae was a, a mixture of minimizing who Jesus is in their life and raising up mysticism and legalism 
in their lives. And so last week, Tommy gave us an excellent message on Paul's Christology. He gave us an in-depth look of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And now Jesus uh, is to be preeminent in our lives over everything and is to be magnified over everything in our lives. And, and, and after Paul brags about Jesus, he gets back to, to being more personal and answers specific questions about his own experience as an apostle and, what he's, and, and explains why he's doing what he's doing. More specifically today, uh, we're gonna talk about why he is willing to suffer to make Jesus known. So if you take notes, here's my first point. My first point is that Paul is, is going to explain to us the reality of suffering, the reality of suffering. If you have your Bibles, open to Colossians 1, and we're gonna, we're gonna, I'm going to start in verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. And so, so Paul is not living in Ned Flanders' Christianity, right? He, is, he admits to suffering. If you, if you remember this, he's in jail while he is penning this letter. So while he is actually suffering, writing this letter, the false teachers in Colossae are not suffering. And so the recipients of this letter are, are observing that, the, that this guy who's in jail is telling us to believe one thing, but the people who are apparently the false teachers are not suffering or struggling at all. And so, so Paul is trying to explain to him the validity of what he's trying to say. But Paul is not only willing to call out the suffering in his life, he, is, he has a proper perspective on the suffering in his life. Read that verse 24 again. He says something weird. He says, in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. This is a difficult verse to completely understand because, because uh, it sounds like what, we're, what it's saying is that Paul is doing something that Jesus couldn't accomplish on his own. And so let me explain to you what this verse doesn't mean, right? It, it, it doesn't mean that Jesus' work on the cross was insufficient. That would contradict like all of Paul's letters and the central point of this book in Colossians. In Colossians. Jesus alone took the penalty for our sins on the cross so that we can be forgiven. Jesus alone uh, gives us his righteousness so that we can be adopted into the family of God. And Jesus rescued us alone from the domain of darkness and brought us into his marvelous light. Jesus doesn't need Paul to save us or transform us or to glorify us. That's, that's not what Paul is saying here. When Jesus died on the cross and he said it was finished, he wasn't lying to us. He wasn't saying, well, wait till Paul gets here. He's gonna truly finish it. No, Paul can't add to anything that Jesus did. God the Father was completely satisfied with Jesus's work and nothing was lacking in his sacrifice. The filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions has to do with the spreading of the gospel. It has to do with the spreading of the gospel. There was a Romanian minister named Joseph Son and he put it this way. He said, Jesus' suffering was for the payment of sins, but our suffering is for the propagation of the gospel. Everyone say propagation. Yeah, this past Thursday when I was preaching this message, um, all the pastors said, I, I need to define what propagation means. And I just think because Tommy didn't know what propagation means. So I'm going to tell you what propagation means. Propagation of the gospel is the spreading or the promoting of the good news that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. 
So Paul is suffering because he was spreading the gospel. He was sharing the gospel with others. He is suffering because he was faithful to what God had called him to do. The world hates Jesus and they want to see Jesus suffer. The world wants to strike Jesus in the head and though because he's not physically here, the world's going to start doing body blows. They're going to start hitting the body. And who's the body of Christ? The church. We are. And Jesus himself warns us that the world is going to do this. John 15, he says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So as we go about, you and I going about fulfilling the Great Commission, spreading the gospel, propagating the gospel to reach a lost and dying world, we shouldn't be surprised that occasionally that lost and dying world hates us and wants to hurt us because the lost and dying world first hated and hurt Jesus. Jesus said in John 16 that in this world you will have tribulation. So in other words, it's not if you are going to suffer, but when are you going to suffer? There are Christians today who are having a very different Sunday morning than you and I are. One in nine Christians worldwide experience persecution for their faith. What that means is one in nine Christians are either being attacked for being Christian or they're being uh, 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 persecuted as, or arrested for being a Christian. And, and so one in nine Christians ex worldwide experience persecution for their faith. 105 churches are attacked, burned, or vandalized every single month. And one out of six Christians in Africa and one out of three Christians in Asia experience high levels of persecution. We don't, we don't see that kind of persecution in this country. However, if you're being faithful to the Lord, we shouldn't be surprised when people mock us or belittle us because of our faith. Our faithfulness to the Lord will bring ridicule for those, from those who do not know him. And that shouldn't surprise us. There are times when we suffer simply because we're trying to live out this new creation life that Christ has purchased for us. And, and where, where Paul is and where Jesus wants us to be is that when we suffer, we're able to rejoice in our sufferings. How do we do that? We'll explain in a second. But, but first, Paul points to the reality of suffering. And then he moves on in the text and he points to the worthiness of suffering. Let's read verse 25 through 27. He says, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this, of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul Paul's ministry was to be an apostle to the Gentiles. That means Paul's mission was to reach everybody for Jesus that wasn't Jewish. Because the other apostles, their ministry was to the Jews, but for Paul, 
His mission was to the people who were formerly excluded from God's plan, who were not Jewish. That's his mission to reach them for the gospel. He is called to reveal to them the mystery that's been hidden from them. That word mystery is interesting because the false teachers, they love talking about mystery. They love talking about the secret knowledge that only you can get if you listen to our teachings. And if you follow this secret knowledge, you'll become like a super Christian or like the best Christian. And what Paul is showing us here is that he tells us what the mystery is in chapter one, right? He's like not trying to keep this a secret. The mystery is the person of Jesus Christ. The mystery is the plan that he wants all people from all ethnicities to be in the family of God. The mystery is that God wants to have his presence in you. This mystery is the worst kept secret ever. Right? In fact, it is not much of a mystery because God has been trying to show us this for thousands of years. Like back in the Garden of Eden, God desired to dwell with us. Uh, when, when God called Abraham out from his pagan nation, he said, I will be with you. When God promised Abraham a child at his old age, God said, I am with you. When Jacob ran away from his family, God told him, I am with you. And when Joseph, after being betrayed by his brothers, uh, 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 betrayed by, by people he worked for, when he was uh, betrayed in jail, forgotten in prison over and over and over again, God has said, I am with you. And that's just the book of Genesis. When we get to the book of Exodus, God tells Moses to go to Egypt to save his people and to stand up against Pharaoh. And Moses pleads with God, pick someone else. Like, don't pick me, pick anyone else. But God tells Moses that he is going with him when he goes to Egypt. When God's people are wandering in the wilderness, hoping that God will remain with them, God gives them a sign with fire by day and smoke by night to remind them that he is with them. When uh, uh, Joshua, the successor of Moses, shows up, the Lord tells Joshua, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. And David hides from Saul when Saul's trying to kill David. God tells David, I am with you. And David tells his own son, Solomon, David says this, he says, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed for the Lord God is with you. And then when God's people are scattered amongst the nation in captivity and they're being beaten down by other nations and other gods and they feel like God has left them, the prophets are crying out, don't give up. God is with you and he has not abandoned you. And then Christmas day happens. And that night in that little manger, baby Jesus is there with Joseph and Mary and the shepherds and the animals and what do they call baby Jesus? They call him Emmanuel. And what does that mean? God with us. And, and it's great. Jesus is here. He's walking with us. He's talking with us. He's eating with us. How could it get any better? And then Jesus says this in John 13. He says, I am only here for a little bit longer. And where I'm going, you can't come with me. That's weird. Three chapters later, Jesus has the audacity to say, in fact, it's better that I leave. It's gonna, be, it's gonna be better. How could it be better? How could it be better than Jesus walking right next to us? Well, that's why we have to get to Acts chapter two. And we read about Pentecost. 
And what happens at Pentecost? In an instant, the Holy Spirit descends on God's people. And so now it's no longer us looking forward to God being with us, but we get to have God in us. Jesus dwells inside of us by his Holy Spirit. And that's so much better. This is the mystery being revealed. Paul is trying to make this mystery become common knowledge. God is no longer just for Israel. He's for everybody. He's for you and for me. And the promise is no longer that God will just simply be with you, but that Jesus will be in you because of the Holy Spirit. The mystery is summarized. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And this is why Paul is willing to go to jail. This is the news that's too good to keep to himself. This is why Paul says he has joy in his suffering because he gets to be a part of the cosmic plan of finding people who were once far from God and not only gets to be with God, but God gets to be in them. But this good news always comes with sacrifice. Gospel advancement always takes sacrifice. Paul is in prison because of this. Our brothers and sisters in Africa and in Asia and the Middle East are, are literally risking their lives today because of this gospel. And for us today in Milwaukee in 2022, it, it, it may take a, some sacrifice from you. Or at minimum, it will take some awkward conversations from you. You, you might get made fun of for being a Christian. For some of you, the, the, the weight of being the, the Jesus lady or the Jesus guy at work, you're gonna get teased, you're gonna get mocked, you're gonna get made fun of. But at minimum, you must be willing to be inconvenienced to share the gospel with others. Gospel advancement always takes some sort of sacrifice. So the question I want you to think about as we keep talking about the sermon is, who are the people that you are willing to be inconvenienced for? Who are you, the people you're willing to be uncomfortable with? Who are the people you're willing to suffer for so that they may know Jesus? Let me get vulnerable with you for a second. I am jealous of Pastor Tommy's hair. I'm also jealous of Jacob's hair and Pastor Adam's hair and Michael. There's a lot of guys on staff that have really good hair. It's kind of like Lego hair, right? This thick and fluffy, and he's like, plop it on. It's just beautiful, you know what I'm saying? Like they're all follically blessed and I'm not, right? The Lord blessed me with more personality because he knew I would have the worst hair on staff at this church. Uh, and I don't want any emails. Some of you guys are like, I'm gonna tell Frank about hymns and keeps. No, you should have told me that 15 years ago when the exodus started happening, right? The Lord gives and he took away. You know what I'm saying? So, so when I find a barber, I am asking for a miracle every time he cuts my hair. Like I, I, I give 25% tips because I'm asking him to like turn water into wine on my head basically. You know what I'm saying? Uh, when I find a good barber, I am loyal. And sometimes I put up with some nonsense for my barber. One time I had this barber, he was trying to, uh, to cut up my, 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 uh, my, my hairline. And he said, do you want me to put the edge where your hairline is or where your hairline should be? And I was like, that's the most disrespectful thing anyone's ever told me. <laughs> I told my therapist all about that that week, but I didn't tell him. I always just smiled towards him. Um, I say all this to say this. I don't joke with my barbers because... I don't want to offend them or make them have a reason to lose me as a client because if I have a good barber, I'm gonna be loyal to that barber because they're, they're doing something up there that I can't find anywhere else. So when I was in Florida, I had this one barber uh, who I found and, and he's, a, he's a great barber. And so the very first day I met him, he, I sat in this chair and he said, hey, what's your name and, and what do you do for a living? And I told him, well, I, I'm a pastor. My name is Frank and I'm a pastor. And he said, oh, that's cool. Um, I'm a Muslim and I have some questions for you. Now, 
any other time, let's do it, bro. Like, I got a copy of the Quran. I've read through it. I got answers to questions, and, and we can go toe-to-toe talking about Islam. But this is my barber, and I'm scared. And the reason why I'm scared is like, one, he has my scalp in his hands with very sharp tools. You know what I'm saying? Secondly, at any minute moment, he could just say, I don't, I'm not going to cut your hair anymore. You've offended me. And so, so I, I, in that moment, like in a, in a couple of seconds, I had to think to myself, am I going to be bold and like challenge his faith? Or am I going to just stay quiet and just be passive in this? I'm, I'm, I'm a pastor and I'm being honest with you. I was like, do I care more about a fresh fade or do I care about this man's heart? So I was willing to get awkward. And for over two years, every four to six weeks, I sat in that man's chair and he cut my hair and he would ask me questions. I remember there was a couple of times he was cutting my hair and I had a Bible, reading the Bible, and my hair was falling on the Bible as I was trying to answer his questions. And I wish I could tell you, I wish I could tell you that, man, he's saved now, he's a pastor. From what, I remember, from what I've known recently, he's still Muslim. However, uh, I know that at minimum, I planted a gospel seed in his heart. At minimum, in a world where a lot of Christians, the moment they hear he's Muslim, want to mock him and ridicule him or just think he's too far gone, there's someone in his life that was able to be patient with him and answer questions with him and, and, and take it sincerely and, like, and, like, and, and show that there was a Christian that actually had compassion towards him. So are you willing to be inconvenienced to advance the gospel in the lives of the people around you? Are you willing to step into the awkwardness for the sake of Christ? I hope everyone's answer is yes. Like, I hope it's obvious because the people around you are worthy of you being inconvenienced, right? It's literally the least we could do in the name of Christ is to allow ourselves to be inconvenienced for a few moments to tell people about Jesus. And if there's consequences, so be it. Whether it's social consequences or financial consequences, I hope you believe that the people who are around you who don't know Jesus are worth you being uncomfortable for a few minutes. Paul talks about the reality of suffering and the worthiness of suffering, but Paul finally tells us about the hope, sorry, not the hope, the how we suffer. How are we to suffer in Christ? So Colossians chapter one, verse 27, let's read again to the end of the chapter. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So, what is the actual activity that Paul is doing that's getting him thrown in jail? Like, what is the thing that he's actually doing that people are like beating him up and torturing him um, and that he's talking about he has joy in the midst of that? Well, he tells us, right? He, he's proclaiming Jesus to people. He's telling them who Jesus is and he came into this world to die for our sins. He was buried in a tomb and he rose again three days later that overcame sin and death so that you can have eternal life. And not just that, but for his specific ministry, he's reaching up people who never had that option and he's showing them that God loves them and wants them in his family. It says he was also warning everyone and this means he's, he's correcting false doctrines, correcting the false teachers that are trying to pull him away from Jesus. And so I would imagine that would get him beat up, right? People don't like being corrected. And Paul's going around saying, that dude's whack, that guy is wrong, and this is the truth. 
He's going around doing that correcting wrong teaching. And he's also teaching everybody what is true. So not just correcting wrong doctrine, but he's also supplementing that with what is true about God's word. So what is the end goal for Paul in all this? His end goal is that they may be mature in Christ. And friends, that's our hope for everyone in here, that you may be mature in Christ. Not just, I snuck into heaven by the last second, but that you grow in your relationship with Jesus, that you may be mature and strong and rooted in who Christ is. This is why Paul is willing to suffer. This is why he has joy in his sufferings. He is suffer- he, his suffering is worth it if it means that there are people who are becoming more mature in their walk and in their faith in Jesus. Paul is not only interested in converts, he's interested in disciples, people who are fully devoted to him so that if and when they get persecuted, if and when they suffer, they're so rooted in who Jesus is that they're confident that their hope is in the right place. He says in verse 29 that this is his toil. He is putting in the effort and struggling to lead people to Christ so that they may, they, they may um, grow into maturity. But all of that effort to see the church as mature keeps putting him back in jail, keeps getting him beat up. And so, so even you right now, as bold and excited for you are as Jesus, if every single day you go to work and they make fun of you and mock you, you have your own limits. You can only take it for so much. And I'm sure Paul, after being beat up and thrown into an over, how does he keep going? Well, he tells us in verse 29, it's not by his own strength. It's by the energy of Jesus that's inside of him that keeps him going. He, he's not relying on himself. He's relying on Christ within him to sustain him and to keep him going. He is leaning deep into the arms of Jesus and trusting on his strength. And what's amazing is as he does that, as he is relying on Jesus for his own strength in the midst of his suffering and he grows in this, his dependence on him, everybody is watching it and they're saying, well, if, if Paul's willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel, so can I. If, if Paul is willing to die for this faith, then we can, we can tell others about Jesus. His boldness and his faithfulness and his suffering is causing the rest of the churches around them to grow stronger in their faith. This is why when Paul says in Philippians, to live is Christ, to die is gain, what he's showing us is that he's unstoppable, right? Right, Paul is saying, if you let me live, I'm going to spend tomorrow telling people about Jesus. If you uh, throw me in jail, I'm going to lead the jailer to Jesus. Oh, you're going to beat me up? Well, when the rest of the world hears about it, they're going to be stronger in Jesus and they're going to like, we'll get beat up for Jesus too. And if you kill me, I get to be face to face with my Savior. So where's the downside? I, I pray that all of us can have the same heart as Paul. Well, to live as Christ and die is gain. Because there's no sour side in that coin when your hope and your faith is in Jesus. So, so far, we've primarily talked about two kinds of suffering. We've talked about persecution, like our brothers and sisters overseas, who, who every single day, even just to, to have a copy of the, of the scriptures or to attend church or to spread the gospel, they're being persecuted or being arrested for their faith. And then we talked about kind of like the everyday inconveniences of being a believer, where like, if you are at all living out your life faithfully, some people are going to judge you and mock you, make fun of you. And I hope that we understand that they're worth you being inconvenienced. But I believe 
because we live in a Genesis 3 world, a world that's under a curse because of sin, hear me, this might sound like new, new stuff to you. Suffering is the normative reality for a believer. Suffering, life being difficult, is, is to be more normal in our lives than not as Christians. And, and what is most likely going to cause you to falter in your faith isn't going to be a Muslim or a Hindu or an atheist challenging your faith and, and you have to like debate them. That I don't think is going to falter most people's faith in this room. What I think is going to cause more people to doubt in their faith is, is when you experience painful suffering that feels like it's unfair in this life and it makes you question whether or not God truly loves you or even cares about you. I, I think the reason why that type of suffering is the hardest is because you and I don't regularly see people in our lives who suffer well. I mean, we just don't see people in our lives suffer as Christians. We have a lot of Ned Flanders Christians pretending that everything is okay. How are you doing? Well, I'm good. And we, we never get vulnerable enough to know that deep down inside their life is shattering and falling apart. I would bet that the people you admire the most in your own life who are believers, you admire them and respect them because you've seen them go through something very difficult in their life or they've suffered. And what you witness is their resilience and their faith on display. And they turn their suffering into worship and prayer. And when you saw that, you're like, I want that in my life. Like, I want to be like that kind of Christian. I guarantee that's the person that you probably admire the most. We need to redefine what a successful Christian looks like because a successful Christian is not someone who is smiley all the time. It seems like they have all the answers. A successful Christian is one who is honest about suffering and still says, it is well with my soul. In the midst of their suffering, it leads them to prayer and worship because their suffering increases their dependence on God. So, while you do that, while you are going to worship and prayer, people are watching you. And Christians and non-Christians alike are seeing you suffer and remaining faithful in him. And it's causing them to believe that the gospel transformation that you talk about with your words is evidence because you're suffering a lot different than the people around us. You get what I'm saying? So with that being said, with the time I have left, I want you to do me a favor. If you're taking notes, you can put your pens down. You can close your Bibles if you want to. I want you just to look at me and listen to me because I want to get like uncomfortably personal with you. As I read the orange cards in our church and I see the prayer requests that are written, uh, I notice that there are like three, category, three categories of people that are going through really hard times. And, and I don't think we're talking about it enough with one another because we're doing that Ned Flanders Christianity. And so if it's okay with you, I wanna give you a vocabulary for those words and show you how God, is gonna, how God is actually currently using your suffering to shape you and for the people around you. The first group of people I wanna to talk to, and this is gonna sound very unromantic, is married people. Marriage is suffering. I know that sounds like a hyperbole, but, but, but listen, it, marriage is a blessing from God, but if you've been married for any meaningful time, you know how hard marriage is. And inevitably, at every service, there's some new, newlywed couple that's like, it's great for us. Stay married, and you'll see how hard it is. Marriage is difficult because what we have is two selfish sinners who need to be selfless for one another. Too often in marriage, when we get to difficult times, we're looking for an exit strategy rather than saying, you're worth fighting for. 
And so, so what we should be saying, what we should be doing is saying, I will go to marriage counseling every day for the rest of my life before I divorce you. What we should be saying is I will change my job, change my habits. Honey, when I get home, I'll put my phone in the kitchen so I'm fully focused on you and not emails if it means that we get to save our marriage. That's what we should be doing. And on the days when you don't have strength to fight for your marriage, you fall deep into the arms of Christ and say, I need you to carry me through this. Now, hear me when I say this carefully. I'm not talking about abuse. If, if, if in your marriage you're experiencing abuse, we want to help you get out of that. We, you should get out of that. And, and, and we work to help you and the other person to, 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 to work on that marriage. But, but I think even if you put abuse aside, marriage is difficult. Marriage is hard. And, and too often, even in non-abuse situations, we're seeing people quickly figure out a way out of a marriage rather than working to fight for their marriage. And so listen to me. When people see how you're fighting for your marriage and clinging close to Jesus, that will speak more about real gospel transformation in your life than you pretending that everything in your marriage is fine. Parents, I, I know you love your kids. I love your kids too. Parenting is suffering. Yes, you are raising the cutest people ever, but you're also raising sinners with the capacity to rebel and fight against you and your wisdom. So parenting is hard and, and you're tired. You're probably not getting enough sleep. And, and if it's not your kid that's making you tired, it might be the school system and you're worried about what the schools are teaching your kids. And if it's not that, it, it, maybe you're in a situation where you're co-parenting and the person you're co-parenting with is not instilling the same values that you were hoping you would instill in your own child. And if it's not that, maybe it's social media, maybe it's their friends. There's a number of reasons to keep you up at night, but we gotta stop pretending that we have it all together. Kids rebel. We get that. Scripture talks about that. Co-parenting is hard. Being up at three in the morning with a fussy kid is suffering, but you never give up. You never stop praying for them. You never give up hope. The Lord loves your child more than you are even able to. And your heavenly father who parents us perfectly will help you parent your child. What is going to be more powerful in your gospel witness to others is when you're honest and vulnerable that parenting is hard and sometimes you have struggles with your own kid. It's better to be honest and transparent about that and show your reliance and faithfulness to God than to pretend your kid's an honor student and that everything is okay. The last group of people I want to talk to is singles. I know people say a lot of dumb stuff to you. They say things like, it's better to be single than married because, you know, being married is hard. Or they say stuff like, look at all the free time you have. Like, I wish I had that kind of free time. Or they'll say stuff like, you know, I have another app for you if you want to try. Have you tried this app? Have you tried that app? And it's frustrating because you feel like you're more known for being single than being you. And I know that there's a unique pain being single and being a Christian. There are times where you feel like you are forgotten and don't belong in your own community at church because you feel like unless you're married, you don't fit in any real category here at church. And, and if you feel that way at Epicos, let me be the first person to tell you I'm sorry. It's not our desire. You are complete and you are enough in Christ and no spouse can add any value or worth to who you are in Jesus. I know this is, there's a longing for companionship and you're tired of doing things alone. Wedding invites stir bitterness in your heart and your married friends sometimes feel like they forget about you. 
But while all that is happening, you are also trying to remain faithful in your convictions to God and what he's given you regarding dating and relationships. And you're surrounded in a culture that has no convictions. And you don't want to sleep around. You don't want meaningless, shallow relationships. You still believe you want to glorify God with your heart and your body. And when you have those biblical convictions and you meet a person that you think you can share that with, you often find people who are trying to convince you out of those convictions or they just end up ghosting you. And so you begin to question, how is it fair that people who don't know the Lord are getting married and are having kids, but yet as you remain faithful, you feel like you're being left behind? You might not realize this, but every single day as you fight for your faithfulness, as you try to kill bitterness in your heart, as you choose to trust God, as you are trying to find contentment when it's very difficult to be content, as you trust God with the desires of your heart every day, that faithfulness to God is growing your gospel witness and it's growing your maturity in the Lord. It's molding something in you to make you more like Christ. And you're, as your character is increasing, the weight of your words means something more. So when you, single person, tell me to trust the Lord, that hits a little different because you're demonstrating every single day of your life and your singleness, I have to trust the Lord. And so when you, kind of, when you tell me to trust the Lord, I believe it because I've seen it in your suffering, in your hardships. Your faithfulness is a powerful witness, not just in your own life, but in the people around you. And so in this example and all the other examples I've given, God is using your suffering to increase your gospel witness in the lives of others. But we gotta put down the facade. We gotta stop living like Ned Flanders. We need a Christianity that shows its scars because scars are evidence that the wounds are being healed by Jesus. You hear me? The reason why you fight for your marriage is because your marriage is worth it. The reason why you sacrifice for your kids is because your kids are worth it. And the reason why you remain faithful in your singleness and not give your heart to someone who doesn't deserve it is because you're worth it. And the reason why we suffer for Jesus is because Jesus is worth it. James chapter one, verse two and four, James says this. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let your steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Your suffering is producing something in your character to make you more complete and mature in Jesus. God does not waste your suffering. There's no meaningless suffering in our lives. And that same suffering is being used to be seen by others. And when people see your faithfulness in your suffering, it emboldens them. And in some cases, even leads people to Jesus. If we have to live in a Genesis 3 world where suffering is a normal experience for Christians, let God use that suffering to mature us in Christ and embolden those around us to trust God more. And remember that Christ is in you. And he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world and greater than anything in the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, suffering is hard. It's painful. It's difficult. Lord, in my own life and in the lives of many people I care about, when they experience suffering, it, it's not pleasant, it's not fun, and and, and, and there are so many times where we can't do this by our own strength. We just lean into your arms, Lord. But Lord, remind us that the key figure of our faith is known as a suffering servant. 
Jesus suffered on our behalf so that we could have eternal life. And, and Jesus takes our suffering and he first molds characters inside of us. He gives us patience and endurance and faithfulness and, 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 and he shapes us to be more in the image of himself and we become more in the image of your son as we endure suffering faithfully, Lord. But Lord, as the watching world is watching us and they see that we are suffering in some of the similar ways that they suffer, they notice that we are suffering differently because we have hope. We have hope in you. I pray, Lord, that as we suffer for your sake, that the world around us become transformed by the image of your beautiful son. In your son's name I pray, amen.